so great to see you this morning. I hope you all are doing well. That has to be our new standard greeting, I guess. We can't say, how are you? We have to say, hope you're doing well. And I really hope you are. Miss you tremendously, uh, but I hope you're staying safe and staying healthy. Uh, most importantly, before we start today, I want to show everyone a happy Mother's Day. Uh, this is a special day for all of us. We love our moms, and uh, I hope that you get to spend time with your mom today. And if you're a mom, you get to spend time with your kids today. And if for any reason you can't, uh, know that you're loved, <laughs> you're missed, and uh, just be well and be safe is the most important thing. But we thank you, moms, for everything you do, and you will always do for us. It doesn't matter how old you are or how old we get. Moms are special. We always need you, and we're always thankful for you. So I wish you a happy Mother's Day, and I hope you have a blessed day today, and be well. This morning, we are going to continue our study of the kings of Judah, and we're going to study King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah at 2 Chronicles chapter 29. If you could turn there, please. Now, King Hezekiah is actually a very rich king as far as scriptural coverage. He's in many chapters. He's in 2 Chronicles 29 to 32. He's in 2 Kings chapters 18 to 20. And even Isaiah chapters 36 to 39. So there's a lot about Hezekiah. It's going to be hard for us to cover all of it today, but we're going to try and hit the highlights of Hezekiah's life. If you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 1, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Let's commit our time to the Lord. Lord God, we thank you so much again for the time it is. Uh, though apart, we are together in you. And we thank you that we can be in your word. And as we continue to study these kings, uh, Father, we thank you for the lessons we can learn from them. And we thank you that through this line of kings, there is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in all things, as we study and learn and grow in Christ, uh, we thank you for that. And we ask you to help us to see Christ in all things. And we thank you and ask you to bless this time now in Christ's name. Amen. So Hezekiah is considered one of the best kings of Judah. Uh, when they look at all the great kings, he is one of the top kings. But he's not a perfect king. He's just a great king. There is no perfect king. The only perfect king is the Lord Jesus Christ. They all have their flaws. They all have their shortcomings. But some of them do great things. And Hezekiah is one of them. Hezekiah comes to reign after um, what can only be described as an awful king before him. And unfortunately for Hezekiah, that was his father Ahaz. Ahaz was one of the wickedest kings that Judah had ever had. He completely corrupted the nation. He openly and encouraged people to worship other gods. Um, he desecrated the temple. He was very simply one of the worst kings, if not the worst king, uh, Judah ever had. So Hezekiah comes in now and he reigns when he's 25 years old. And what he encounters is... Israel in disarray. Judah has been decimated by, in fact, their brothers in Israel. And the place is a mess. And he has to clean things up. Now, he can continue in his father's ways, but Hezekiah is a godly man. And he realizes that for things to change, the first thing that has to change is Judah's relationship with the Lord. They have completely turned their back on the Lord. In fact, it even says in one of the verses, when they clean up the temple, uh, they refer to the turning their back on the Lord because the way they reorganized things to worship other gods, the altars had been turned so their back was to God where they should have been facing. So there's co complete corruption in the temple and in um, all of Judah. So it says in verse 3, In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord 
and repaired them. You need a way in. Without a way in, there's no access. So he fixes the doors. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and turned their backs on him. And he goes on to continue with all the, the things that they have done. What Hezekiah does by doing this, what, what the process that he's putting in place is actually brilliant when it comes to restoring Judah in general. Because what Hezekiah realizes, what he's doing in this process, is that the spiritual heart of the people needs to be fixed first. So what he's going to do is, he's going to clean the nation from the inside out. He's going to start with the temple, and he's going to restore all the things of the temple. Throw out all the garbage, restore all the altars. They're going to sanctify everything. They're going to clean everything. They're going to restore everything. Then they're going to reestablish the role of the priests. And they're going to reestablish the roles in the worship and the burning uh, sacrifices and uh, the, um, the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and all the things that they do in the temple. Because that's going to bring the people's hearts back to God. And what we're going to see is when he brings the people's heart back to God, Judah's going to get changed from the, outs from the inside out. If he tries to do it from the outside in, he's going to fail because he's doing it without God. He's got to get the people's hearts back towards God. You know, that's how God works in us. God starts from the inside and works his way out. Once you commit yourself to a life with God in Christ, the first thing he's going to change is the heart. If the heart doesn't change, the rest of the life is not going to change. So God changes the heart first. He gets us to look at things with different eyes, think of things with a different mind, and have a different compassion than we ever had before. And then our life changes. Now, maybe our circumstances can't change all the time, but we change. And when we change, we see our circumstances differently. And this is what's going to happen in the nation of Judah. Because if the spiritual life is not right, then nothing else is going to be in order. That's true of Judah. It's true of the church, and it's true of the person. We have to be clean from the inside out. And that's the process that Hezekiah is going to go through. In verse 11, he says this to the priests, to the Levites. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. What a privilege they have to the calling that they have been put to not just to clean the temple, but to be the ones who bring the offering and the sacrifices on behalf of the people. I don't know about you, but I honestly, whenever I look in the Old Testament and I see the priests and the work of the priests, um, my heart actually kind of jumps with a little joy, with a lot of joy, when we realize that we as believers in Christ are now priests of Christ. Not according to the order of Aaron, and Levitical priests, but according to the order of Melchizedek, to the one who goes before us, the one true high, high priest. And now we as his priests get to bring our offerings of sacrifice. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful privilege, and I hope that you take seriously in your heart the opportunity and privilege it is, as Peter calls us, a royal priesthood. Um, the, the opportunity and the privilege it is to bring worship before God 
to enter the throne room with boldness. What we're going to see through, uh, and if you read through this, I'm not going to be able to hit every verse, but I encourage you to read through this, all the things that they have to do to sanctify themselves in order to do the work in the temple and the work of the priests. We don't have that because we've been cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ and by his blood. And so as his, he goes before us, we have the right to now serve him. And um, as he says, it is a privilege. And again, what Hezekiah says to them, do not be negligent for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him and to minister to him. And as Hezekiah says, what their role was, was to burn incense. For, that, for us, that is symbolic of the worship and the praise that we bring before our God. Let's remember and enjoy and be thankful for the privilege it is and the importance of being cleansed so that we can be the ones who bring our offering before God and all the work that Christ has done for us and the privilege it is to be one of his priests. So he's going to encourage them now to go through all the work that they have to do to sanctify themselves and get the temple ready. They do a lot of work. It takes them many days to clean the temple. And now Hezekiah restores worship. And he gathers the rulers of the city. And they go in and they, they do all the blood offerings to purify the altars. And in verse 24, it says this, And the priests killed them. And they presented their blood on the altar as a sin offering to make an atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering be made for all Israel. Another beautiful thing that makes Hezekiah a great king. He's not focusing on Judah. He's focusing on Israel and Judah. He wants all of God's chosen people to be restored back to him. He sees the importance of unity, the, the brokenheartedness of God when the kingdom divided and the wickedness of the other kingdom, and what they're now going through because of their wickedness, and what they did to Judah because of their wickedness. Who, who would do that? Most people would be worried about themselves, and they would wish their worst upon their, what's now become their enemy after what they've done to them, but not Hezekiah. Hezekiah wants everything to be done for all of Israel. He sees the importance of reconciliation. That's the kind of God that we worship. He is a God of reconciliation. And so he, he brings these offerings before all of Israel. Now look down to verse 28. And once they come together and they do the burnt offering on the altar, it says in 27, when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. So all the assembly worshipped, the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. What a beautiful picture of the joyful sound that the unity of worship brings. I know I've been on my rants before, and uh, I want, want to make another point about singing and worship in the church today. Singing to worship is one of the best things. It's one of the, the best experiences you can have in your worship. And we should be so thankful to God that he's given us music to worship him. It's a great way for us to be worshiping in unity. It's a tremendous, tremendous blessing that God has given to us to be as one, not just individuals, but we all become one when we're all singing together 
and we're bringing this musical noise up together and we all identify with each other with what the music says to us and through us. It's just important to remember that music is not the only form of worship. The American church today has become so focused on only music being the form of worship that there's other parts of worship that they miss out on. Um, so enjoy music. And we miss singing here together. I can't tell you how much I miss um, playing and singing here. And hopefully that uh, we'll be able to do that again soon. But um, just keep focused on the whole picture of worship. Uh, because there's, there's more to it than, than just singing. And in verse 30, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. There's a completeness to worship. It's not just singing. But let's not forget or take for granted how important singing is to worship. It's wonderful to do by ourselves when we're alone with God. And it is tremendous when we get to do it as a body. And let's keep praying that the Lord allow us to get back together um, so we can do that together as a group. And as we see now, um, also continuing with the story, what's going to happen is they have an abundance of offerings now. There's so much coming in. And the Lord of, house of the Lord is set in order, it says in verse 35. And in verse 36, Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. They were able to pull all this together very quickly and begin worshiping <clears throat> excuse me, in the, in the temple. And what did they do? They rejoiced that God had prepared the people. It's God who moves the hearts of people. It's God who had the people respond. It's God who inspired Hezekiah to even do this. It's God that made all of it happen. So even in what we do and how we do it, not just when we worship, but the fact that we get to worship and how we worship, that God inspires us to worship, all the credit has to go to God, all the worship has to go to God, and all the glory has to go to God. Now Hezekiah does another important thing that has been neglected uh, in the kingdom of Judah. In chapter 30, uh, it says, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. So now that the temple is restored, and it can be used, Hezekiah realizes that the people, if they're going to get right with God, have got to go back to one of the core things that's central to their worship, which is the Passover. Remembering that God is a deliverer. There's turmoil going on. There's turmoil coming. There's crisis is coming. So Hezekiah wants to get the people right with God, and so he brings them back to what God has done. What ends up happening um, to skip the, the, the time for the story, is they actually miss the calendar date when Passover is supposed to be held. So do they wait a whole another year after they've done all this and they really want to worship God? Or do they go ahead and have the Passover a month late anyway? Well, they actually go ahead and they have the Passover. There's no reason for them to wait for it. They need to get their restoration started now. And now normally... When it comes to the things of God and the lawful things of God, um, how they are done and when they are done is very important to God. And we've seen in the past in the Old Testament scriptures that there's also judgments to those who violate those things. But God's going to allow this now because he realizes what's happening and he's encouraging it. The people need to get their heart right with God and celebrating the Passover is going to be critical to them doing that. Now, what they're going to do is they're actually going to 
sent people out to bring all the people of Judah and Israel together. So they send runners out through all Israel and Judah with the letters of the king to come and worship and celebrate the Passover. And they are ridiculed and they are mocked as they go out. But they go out anyway. And in the letter that Hezekiah wrote, it says, For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who led them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Another picture of the greatness of God that Hezekiah is appealing to the people that he recognizes. God's heart is always open for people to return to him. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter where you've been today, what you've done the past week, or under this time under quarantine. If you want to return to God, his heart is open. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. That's the character of God. That's an attribute of God. That is the nature of God. And God can't deny himself. All who want to come to God will be received and accepted. Whether you've never come to God before, or maybe you just have not been walking with God of late. Maybe it's been a while. Maybe you think it's been too long. It hasn't. If you read through this, this passage and look at what happened under King Ahaz and, and other situations, you would think these people could not come back to God. He would give up on them. But when Hezekiah sends this letter out, um, many, many people respond to that. From Israel, they come to Jerusalem and they come back and they celebrate the Passover together. God is a reconciling God. He wants his people restored. All it takes is to accept the invitation. God is a God who sends out an invitation for all who will receive it. So even though they're mocked and they're rejected, they still go out through all the land and they invite everyone who's willing to come. And they do. It says in verse 18, for a multitude of the people, a multitude of the people came. There were many in the assembly. Now the problem is there's a, um, a ritual cleansing that has to be done to partake in the Passover, part of the Jewish law. But when they're ready and all the people are there that they want to get it started, many of the people have not cleansed themselves. But Hezekiah prays for them. And he says, may the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and he healed the people. Another picture of how Hezekiah almost pictures Christ for us because Christ is our intercessor. It is only through Christ that we have the right and the privilege to enter the Holy of Holies, as it is a spiritual thing for us now, and enter into the presence of God. Without Christ's cleansing, without Christ's intercession, we cannot. So Hezekiah's petition on behalf of the people, it seems that God is more concerned that the people's heart wants to celebrate and worship than how perfectly they came and if they followed everything and washed every hand perfectly and all the things they had to do. God reveals again his nature. It's not the perfection of the person coming. It's the heart that wants to bring worship to God. So maybe we're not perfect when we come to God. Maybe we forgot to confess a sin. Maybe we didn't have time. We can always get that right with God. But God's more concerned that we come and bring our worship than anything that's perfect.
Verse 28, 26 says, or 25, the whole assembly of Judah rejoiced. And the priests and Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwelt in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. This party, we're going to call it a party, it's a celebration. They've gotten so focused on God now, after so much wickedness and so much depravity, when they actually get their hearts back to God, they can't stop celebrating. It shows the singleness of heart when the people are worshiping together. And in fact, they're, they're so joyful that after seven days, they decide to go seven days more. I have to be careful when I say things like I'm about to say because people hold me accountable. But I just picture us when we finally get to get back together, wouldn't it be great if we just kept going? Why worry about the clock? When we get to worship together again, I don't want to worry about the clock. I want to get together with the people of God. I want to worship until we have nothing left. That's how badly we should be missing worshiping together right now. We should be so um, thirsty for the opportunity to be as a body. You know, I had a, I had a neighbor one time. Oh, he's still my neighbor, actually. But I was talking with him. And his wife went to church and he said, you know, I could just go and worship by a tree. I don't need to go to church. And that's true. In fact, I would encourage everyone to go sit under a tree and worship or go sit on a field or a, or a cliff or by the ocean or a lake or wherever you find your quiet place. Spend that time with God. Worship God from the depth of your heart. Um, find the privacy where you can just be vulnerable to God and then hear God. But there's also something special about God's people getting together and sharing our worship together. When we get together, we get to build each other up in worship because we're sharing worship together. Uh, when me and another person, another person, another person, we're all worshiping together and we're all getting our hearts fixed on God, um, it's, it's a different experience. And it's something that we should never take for granted. And I hope that you miss it. And I hope when we get the opportunity to get back together, um, you'll be anxious for it. Don't let that fire be quenched and the desire to worship. We should be more passionate for it than we've ever been in our lives uh, with this um, lacking of it. Maybe that's part of what God is doing right now. He's trying to get his people to realize how much we miss uh, by not being together. And if you're not missing it, I'm going to ask you to kind of get your heart back right with God and find out why, because you really should be. You, you should be desperately seeking the, the worship together with God's people. Now, that the people are all worked up, and this is the beauty of Hezekiah's plan and what he's been doing. Now that the people's heart is right with God, they're going to get to work. And in chapter 31 and verse 1, it says, When all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah, and they broke the sacred pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images, and threw down the high places and the altars. From all Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. Now that their heart is right with God, God came first, and now they are passionate. They don't need to be instructed to go clean these things up. They're convicted that this needs to be addressed. If Hezekiah started with, go clean up the cities and break the altars, 
I don't know how successful he would have been. I don't know how long-lasting the change would have been, how many people would have been involved in it. It might have been an exercise in futility. But by allowing God to change people's hearts first, now they're convicted on their own to do what's right for God. If we turn over to 2 Kings now, we kind of switch our books and our story. And if we go to 2 Kings chapter 18, In verse 4, again, picking up the story of Hezekiah from this point, it says, He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Neshitan, which just means something made of bronze. The serpent, if you don't know the story, in the wilderness, as the people complained, they began getting attacked by serpents. So God had Moses make a bronze serpent and hold it up so that when the people looked at it, they would be saved from the bite of the serpent. If they didn't, or if Moses' hand fell, the people would get sick and they would die. It's a type of Christ. It's a picture of Christ for us, high and lifted up. Christ said, I must, as the man, son of man is lifted up. That's uh, a picture of this bronze serpent that Moses had made. Never before that I'm aware of in any of the Old Testament is this thing ever mentioned again. But here we find, so many years later, that they're hanging on to it. And now it's become a thing of worship. We have to be careful that the things that God uses to do what God does don't become idols of worship. We don't look at the cross as what we worship. We look at Jesus Christ. But we remember the cross. We don't idolize the cross. We don't idolize statues. God told us not to make any idols of anything, anything in heaven. So we have to be careful that we keep our eyes fixed on the creator, on the one who did the work. You know, we are made with a need to worship. And it's very easy for us to get distracted and misfocused on what we put our worship on, even when we think it's a godly thing. But if we're worshiping anything other than God and his son, then it's idolatrous. So what does Hezekiah do? He smashes it into pieces. He broke it into pieces. He didn't just throw it away. I think he makes a symbolic gesture to the people that anything that is idolatrous has got to be thrown out and broken. The high places were broken down. Um, not many kings did this. And it's a, one of the reasons why Hezekiah is looked at as a special, uh, special king. The high places could be used for worship, and sometimes they were used around the land in different places outside of Jerusalem. That was not what God wanted once the tabernacle and then the temple were built. Once God had a place for people to come worship, that's where he wanted them to come worship. The high places sometimes were used to worship God, but most of them were used and typically used to worship other gods. So to eliminate that, they break everything down and they destroy it. Hezekiah, it is said, and every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment, to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. So he prospered. The key there is that he did it with all his heart. His commitment to God, serving God, putting God first in the nation, gave him a special place. And because of that, he prospered. Near the end of his life, we're actually going to see that he's not, he didn't hold up to everything the way he should have. Um, he has some failures near the end, but we'll get to that later. 
But overall, his whole time has been committed to getting the nation back right with God. And he does that. They have victories. They subdue the Philistines. Um, he fortifies the city. He builds things up. And it looks like he's got quite the kingdom being built and quite being restored and God is being prosperous. There's a problem, though. And it's the nation, uh, the kingdom of Assyria. Uh, they are the great conquering um, people at this time. And they've taken Israel captive. And because it says they did not obey the voice of the Lord. They transgressed his covenant. So God let Assyria take them. This has Hezekiah a bit concerned. When uh, the new king of Assyria, Sennacherib, uh, begins coming up against Hezekiah, this is one of Hezekiah's few mistakes. It says in 2 Kings 18, verse 14, Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Now, it seems like Hezekiah is making peace for his people to avoid war. And part of this goes back to some arrangements that his father had made with Assyria even before this king. But it's, a, it's an awful mistake. For one, he does not trust in God to deliver him from Assyria. He puts his trust uh, in buying him off and just making him happy. The problem is the Assyrians are basically bullies. They're conquerors. You can't pay off a bully because once they know they can collect from you, they're just going to come back for more. And that's what happens. After he pays them, in verse 17, the king of Assyria sends his emissaries with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. And when they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they come up, they went up and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which is on the highway to the fuller's field. And they begin challenging them. And they start challenging his people. They don't wage war. They don't wage physical war. This is what's interesting. <clears throat> this person who's a representative of the king, his, his title is Rabshakeh. And he says to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this in which you trust? Because it looked like Hezekiah had been building up plans for war, or at least to defend himself. Maybe even making uh, arrangements with Egypt to help fight him. But he says this, If you say to me, We trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? So now he's challenging Hezekiah's worship of God and cleaning things up. So when they come from an idolatrous nation, you expect to have uh, multi-theism, the worship of multiple gods. And when Hezekiah cleaned all this up, they saw this as something that was stupid. He even challenges them and says, he goes, I'll give you a pledge. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to even put riders on them. So now he's challenging whether they have enough people to hold them off. See, this is a psychological battle. And this is what happens uh, when we're attacked. The enemy finds much greater pleasure in defeating the spirit than the body, the will. They want to break the will, not the body. Because you can break my body, but if I still have my heart right with God, I can get through it. When you break my will, I've given up, and you've won. So they don't even need to conquer them physically. Their goal is to break them mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. He even says, 
Have I not come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. He's even blaspheming God and challenging them with his insults. Now in 29, he says, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from his hand. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given to the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me, by present come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vine, every one from his own fig, and every one of you drink from the waters of his own cistern. And he goes on to make all these offers, and they're all lies. But do not listen to Hezekiah, lest he persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? No. They couldn't. What could any god do for any nation if it's not the god of heaven, the god of, of everything, uh, the Lord God Jehovah? If it's, that's not your god, then, then whatever they were worshiping and whatever they were looking to to protect them from the Assyrians, they had no hope in any way. So he has false pride in thinking that this God is just another God because he's defeated every other nation's gods. But they're not even gods. The Lord God is the one true God. And when his people turn to him, he will hear and he will protect. He will protect his people and he will keep them. Rabshakeh's goal is to bring discouragement, doubt, and fear. Again, he wants to break their will, break their spirit. But the people turn back to, to God. And Hezekiah actually reaches out to um, Isaiah. And Isaiah tells him, through all these attacks, almost, uh, the king of Assyria even comes back again. And he is not allowed to defeat the people of Judah because of Hezekiah's faith and Hezekiah's prayers. Psalm 40, verse 11 says, Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. There's only one response to the lies that come to try and defeat our soul and our spirit and discourage us. It's hanging on the truth of God's word because he does not lie. He cannot lie and he will never lie. So every promise God has made, we can rest upon. And whatever comes at us, um, the world is never going to be the same. Um, things are never going to be right again. All these things are even going on in the world today or in small things, big things, it doesn't matter. The whole point is that it's attempted to be used to cause discouragement. And discouragement allows us to give up. And once our spirit is broken, the victory is won. But we can hang tight and we can find encouragement and victory because through God, his truth will preserve us. When all other things are uncertain, when there's doubt everywhere, when we don't know where everything is going to be, we can hang on to the truth of God. Now, later in his life, if we look at chapter 20, Hezekiah becomes sick. And Isaiah comes to him and says, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Hezekiah turns to the Lord, and he prays to him. He says, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart, and have done what was good in your sight. And he wept bitterly. 
because he had not done all he had done. It's believed that this time he had not made an heir yet. So his house was not in order. And we love to throw that expression on, get your house in order. Um, this is one of the reasons why. He had maybe done a great job as a king, but everything he was supposed to do, he had not done yet. So Isaiah gives him a warning. But after his prayer, the word of the Lord came to him, to Isaiah, and he returns to him. And he says, the Lord says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. What would you do if God or however you found out, he knew exactly how many days you had? Some people go through that with, with terminal illness. Um, are you going through it now or maybe you, you know someone who's gone through it in the past? Um, and it's a hard thing. You, you try and wrap your mind around the depth and the reality because you know, most of us, we have no idea how long we have. We think we're living every moment to its fullest. We're giving God every moment. But the truth is, the reality is, we tend to take a lot for granted. I know I do. Uh, there's always tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. I'll call tomorrow. Um, I'll get that done tomorrow. Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Lord, teach us to number our days. All of our days are numbered. We just don't know what they are. But what would you do if you knew what they were? What would you do differently? Maybe that's the way we need to live now. Maybe that's the way we need to think of other people in our lives now, that maybe our time is limited and we want to take advantage of that time. Maybe we want to take advantage of the opportunities we have to serve God and tell people about God now. Because not only do we not know how much time they have, we don't know how much time we have. So I want to encourage you today and make uh, this offer, uh, as we talked before, when Hezekiah made an invitation to all of Judah Israel to come worship at the Passover. I want to extend an invitation to you that if you have never made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, if you never asked him to be your Lord and accepted his free gift of the work that he did on the cross to forgive you of your sins, I encourage you to do so today because you don't know what your days are. And I hope you'll take this uh, to great thought if you've never done that. We don't know how long we have. Now, after Hezekiah gets made well, this is going to be his big downfall. Um, and, it's a, and it's a tragedy, tragic kind of way to go after all that he has done. People from Babylon come to visit him. They heard he'd been sick and they want to come and see how he was doing. They want to be encouraging to him. And in 2 Kings 20, verse 13, when Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, all his armory, all that was found among his treasures... There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Here's where Hezekiah falls after near the end of his life. His pride. He does not show them all that God has done. He does not show them the majesty of God. He does not um, lead them into a place where they would say, wow, your God is amazing. He shows them all that he has. None of it is based on God. None of it is spoken of as being from God. Um, none of it is because of the prosperity he has because of his work for God and his faithfulness to God. It's about him. So when Hezekiah, I mean, Isaiah comes to visit him, he says, what did these men say from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, they came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, what have they seen in your house? 
And Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon, and nothing shall be left. They shall even take some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not be peace and truth, at least in my days? Now he is recognized as being a great king, and this is a tragic way for his life to end. It would have been better if he had ended as with the glory of God and God had blessed him. Um, but Babylon is going to come, as we know, and be conquerors uh, as well, if you know the story of Daniel and many others. Uh, that's all because of Babylon, because of Hezekiah's failure right here and not giving God glory and credit for all his blessings. I want to, before we end, I just want to encourage us. Um, there's a prayer that Hezekiah gave, and it's recorded in Isaiah chapter 38, and I want to highlight verses 17 to 20. He says this, Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness, but you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For shale cannot thank you, death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you. As I do this day, the Father shall make known your truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we will sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. That is a prayer of a man who loves God and loves to worship God and recognizes what God has done for him. You have cast all my sins behind your back. So as we go forward, I encourage you and uh, encourage all of us to put worship at the forefront of our lives right now. To remember to focus on God, to trust in God, and to have the, the hope that comes from knowing God and the peace. So to sum up, worship should be the centerpiece of our lives and the church and our relationship with God. Remember that God cleanses from the inside out. Let him work in your heart and then let the rest of your life follow where your heart is changed. When it comes to challenges and threats or in, uh, discouragements, look, don't take the bait. Take it to the Lord. The people of Hezekiah would not utter a word back to Rabshakeh when he was challenging them. They kept their mouths shut. They wouldn't, wouldn't take the bait. Let's remember to number our days. Value every day, every moment with those you love every time that you have, but also remember that we have a purpose here as children of God uh, to serve him and let others know about him. Give the glory to God for all that he has done. Beware of our pride. Remember that everything is God who has received the glory. Lord bless you. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you that you have begun changing our hearts from the inside out. In a way, it was done in an instant. The moment we received Christ, our hearts were changed, new. Not just improved, but new. But Lord, now that the heart has changed, let us change our lives um, like a temple being cleansed and purged. May the altars be smashed and the high places broken down. And whatever idols we have, may they be smashed so that we could be those who worship you in purity, 
and uh, true focus on you, our one true God. Lord, help us to number our days. Uh, help us to remember that every moment is a gift and to live like them and to make others know how precious they are while we are here and while we have them. Uh, Father, we want to exalt you and thank you again for your mercy and your grace. And we give you all the worship and praise this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.